0: Join me as we pray again and periodically I'd like to remind us that we don't do this because it's a nice ritual to do. You know. We pray before we hear the word of God because we cannot understand it apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We're so prone to do things in the flesh. Even this morning in my reading for today, reading from Psalm 44, that it's not by the power of our arm or our right hand, but the light of his face and his delight in his people. So we need to remember that. I mean, I I dare not step into this pulpit thinking that I can do anything to persuade you in any direction at all. And you cannot understand it by your own intelligence. Yes, we need intelligence. That's part of being created in His image. We'll look at that next week as we begin the series. But will you join me as we pray and pray wholeheartedly for illumination. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge again that you are the living word. And that the written word has power only because it corresponds to you. The Logos in whom God spoke clearly. And therefore as we go backwards before you or forward from your time on earth. You are the great I am. And you are with us causing us to understand. We want to be like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he expounded the scriptures to us? Lord, I'm not you. There's no way I can expound the scriptures in a way that will cause people's hearts to burn. So whatever eternal is going to happen today, in the next little while, it's going to happen because of your pleasure, your love for your people, and your power. So we call upon those this morning in Jesus' name. I don't know about you, but when it comes to giving away either my money or my time, it's a lot, lot easier for me to give away my money. And maybe there are many of you who are like that. Maybe there's not too many of you are like that. But it doesn't take a whole lot of reflection to realize that our time is far more valuable than our money. Because we have the ability to be given money, to win it in a lottery, if you're inclined in that way, we can borrow money, we can make money, we can save money against a rainy day. But we can't do any of that with our time. I mean, you can't go to the most loving person that you know and say, Hey, can you do with one hour less today because I need 25? It just won't happen. It can't. All of us have exactly the same amount of time and we're all spending it at exactly the same rate, one hour every hour. Therefore, how we invest our time is far more crucial than how we invest our money. Although, that's probably important too. And if we are Christ followers, as most of us are, I assume, we want to be investing our time in a way that brings glory to Jesus. Whether directly in an act of worshipping Jesus as we have this morning. Whether in loving one another in the body of Christ, because that is to love the bride of Christ and so we honor him when we do that. Or whether it is together serving people who do not yet know Jesus so they might love him. Which is also a demonstration of our love for Jesus. That we want more and more people to worship him. So whether it's in loving Jesus personally, loving one another in the body of Christ. Or serving others together. We're investing time in one of these things. So today, or this, or this season in the church's life. We as staff and elders are asking many of you to consider investing. At least over the next eight weeks a significant block of your time in one particular activity that will significantly enhance our experience of the whole story over the next eight weeks. And that is to participate in small groups. I want to win a hearing for that today. For those of you who are already part of small groups, to just continue that commitment. And for those of you who are not, to consider at least this seven or eight week with a single break in Thanksgiving week, uh, to join us uh, and get a taste Of the kind of life change and transformation that is intended to and can often happen within small groups. I want to provide a biblical basis for you because that's the only basis of confidence that I have in any kind of a strong appeal and exhortation. Now having said that we cannot give away more time. We're attempting as leaders to do the next best thing. And that is to cancel as many other programs as possible to free up time for you. We're even not having the 1040 window prayer meetings that we have every September and had it for 20 years because some of these temporary small groups or seven week small groups are actually meeting on a Sunday night. So we want to do our part in creating as much time as possible for you in terms of reallocating it And encouraging you to be able to do that. I want to anchor my message today in this text. Philippians chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. Especially the opening lines. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father for him. This is one of the first reasons that I want to set before you participation in a small group community allows us to obey this exhortation to let the word of christ which is really the whole story it's all about jesus to dwell within us richly because for that to happen the word of god has got to penetrate deeper so that's the first thing you want to fill out in your notes if you're taking them small groups drive help us to drive the weekend message deeper into our hearts i came across this quote attributed to benjamin franklin tell me and i forget teach me and i remember Involve me and I learn. Now the weekend sermon, the one that you're listening to right now, for example, and any other weekend, is basically a one-way communication. I'm telling you things and you will forget them by Wednesday. 90% of them will be forgotten by Wednesday. Hopefully I'm doing a lot more than telling you in these pulpits. My goal is to teach you. And if I'm successful, then you're probably remembering some stuff. But your involvement in this setting is quite low. I mean, active listening, I've tried to teach you, is an act of worship. So hopefully you are being involved in that way. But apart from that, you don't have any other involvement in this. So that last part of learning through involvement doesn't happen in a large group, one-way communication like this. And the reason involvement is so crucial is it broadens the relevance of what you're hearing? When you get involved in the process of driving deeper what you're learning here on the weekend, there's an infinitely greater variety of ways in which what you have been taught can be seen to apply to your lives that goes way beyond what I could help you understand. But even more important, you let you resist the truth less. You accept it more readily because you've been part of the process of unearthing it and identifying it. I want to give you some examples from our own uh, small group. Uh, By the way, there are many examples, but what I share and the examples aren't important as much as what it teaches you about the small group dynamic. Uh, For example, one weekend... uh, The message from Isaiah had been on vision and the importance of us, each one of us, getting a sense of God's vision for our lives. And so one of the questions in the study guide for the small groups was, how do we get a handle on God's vision for our lives? So I asked our group that. And here are some of the things they came up with. Uh, They said convergence. By that, looking at many things that are happening, many life situations and circumstances, if they're all converging on something, that's one way you get a handle. Uh, History is important. Looking at what's been happening in your life in the past. Uh, Somebody else said praying, praying God's word and praying with other people. One person said, uh, and of course time to reflect, and one person said a specific hard person that God puts into your lives. Like an in your face kind of individual. And one individual in our group talked about how a prolonged exposure to that kind of a person was significantly important in molding their call, their lifelong calling to be an intercessor. Uh, someone said putting yourself in uncomfortable situations might get you a vision for God's purpose. Thinking about ways to glorify God in your interaction with people, whether the grocery store clerk or the person who pumps the gas or the person you meet across uh, the street or the neighborhood. Listening to friends, to colleagues. Listening for the passions in your own heart, what energizes you, what you daydream about. Vulnerability. Isn't that amazing? I had no time in my sermon to come up with all those things. But this group was able to identify because there were 11 people in that group along with me. And there were 11 hearts that were represented and they were interacting the message. And now tell me something, which of these applications do you think they're likely to remember more? The stuff I gave in the sermon or the stuff that they came up with? You know the answer to that. Involvement, that's an example of involvement. By the way, it wasn't an isolated example. A few weeks later, I think in, 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 in the sermon on Isaiah that particular week, we had occasion to mention King Ahab's. And how Ahaz, even though God disciplined him, he increased in his wickedness. So one of the questions in the study guide was, why do Christians rebel even more when they are being disciplined by God? My small group came up with these answers. Insightful. My idols are in fact, these are reasons why we continue to rebel under discipline. By the way, that's not the subject of today's sermon. Today's sermon is how small groups come up with this stuff. (laughs) But you might learn other things in the process. (laughs) My idols are in fact worthy goals either due to my pride or lack of discernment. I'm too fearful of listening. Deceitful hearts that seek correction as judgmental intended by God to knock me down rather than help my growth. Lack of maturity that does not recognize my heart's deceitfulness. Emotional roots. That came up because that was the week Lance Armstrong's story broke. And how he had set up this elaborate scheme of deception to dope himself so he could win seven Tour de France titles. And he actually managed to persuade himself he was doing nothing wrong. And one of the interviewers asked him that question and his answer traced him back to all kinds of emotional issues in his past. So that that was a a reason uh, that came up. Then somebody else said, the pleasure is real and we haven't learned to delay gratification. Another person said, when in the flow of things and something happens that worries you, you need an immediate answer. Hence a combination of worry and haste. And somebody else said, not convinced of God's love, so you can't trust him. Now, I don't have enough insight into the human heart to come up with 11 reasons why Christians rebel against discipline. But 11 hearts in the small group were able to do that. And so there you see involvement that widens the application, increases our grasp on how things work. And hopefully, somebody or the other connected with some of these, while they may not have connected with anything that I came up with in the sermon. And by the way, as I've said, they resist less what they are, not what they are told, but what they come up with for themselves. So that's the first reason. Small groups allow us to drive the weekend message deeper through broadening the relevance and applicability and increasing ownership. Secondly, small groups allow us to teach and admonish one another. The central exhortation of Colossians is to teach and admonish one another. Now in the first chapter of Colossians, Paul also says that he... Was called to teach and admonish. So my job in my preaching and my teaching is also to do this. Teaching and hopefully gently admonish when needed. But chapter 3. The exhortation we're looking at says. Teach and admonish one another in the horizontal direction. Now that can't happen on a Sunday morning. It's would be highly awkward and inappropriate. If somebody got up right now and wanted to correct me. Or interrupt what I'm saying. My dear wife would never dream of standing up in church on a Sunday morning after I finish speaking and contradict what I've just said. She does it in the small group. (laughs) She does it respectfully most of the time. I should say all of the time because she's watching this live. (laughs) No, seriously though. She wouldn't do that here, but in a small group setting she does. Others in the small group get to do that too. And I want to share with you one particular day when both teaching and admonishing happened from the small group to me. That wasn't their intention, but it was it was happening. That week, the message in Isaiah had been on leadership. And so one of the questions in the study guide was, thinking about leaders who have influenced you for good, what are their qualities? What character qualities in leaders that you know have influenced you for good? The first answer really shocked me when they said, we can't think of many. That's sobering already. Very sobering. And then they came up with some others Humili- Here's another sermon right Not part of the main sermon But a sermon within a sermon We can't think of many Humility that accepts faults Competency Knowledge for others benefit Principle Meaning that they love their life according to principles Teachability A genuine interest in others Knowledgeable but don't use that knowledge to drown others Instead committed to listening to see how best to deliver that knowledge Able to be silent so they can listen well People who demonstrate stability in spite of circumstances and so are not easily rocked. Courage to be unpopular and authenticity across many arenas in their life. Now the interesting thing was, these things weren't really applications in their own life. Because they they weren't leading, I was leading. So guess who they were really talking to? Basically without knowing it, they were saying, Sundar, you need to be this kind of a person. They were teaching me. And because I'm sharing it now in a group where elders and staff members are sitting, they are teaching you too. Now these 11 people would not have had any other setting in this church where they would have been able to say things like this to the leadership. But in that small group setting where teaching and admonishing one another was going on, they were able to do that. By the way, they went beyond teaching, which all this was, uh, again to admonish. Again, they didn't know it. Because I drove the question a little bit deeper, and I said, "If you guys were speaking to Rexdale's elders at this time, in this time of transition, what would you say to us, staff and elders?" Guess what? Now it moved from teaching to admonishing, and this is what they said: "Don't be quick to judge, because you're narrow-minded or unwilling to discuss issues further. Don't lose sight of the congregation." why? There's a significant disconnect between where people are and where you think they are, especially in this time of transition. Don't be complacent simply going through the routines rather than being hungry for the presence of the Spirit in the life of our church. Be spiritually vigilant. Remember that even good structure can lead to a rigid rather than a growth mindset. Help people to discern the times. Shepherd and care for them. So now they were given an opportunity because they're in a small group setting, not just to teach us what kind of leaders we need to be, but to admonish us as well that in these times of transition, you need to be careful that you don't lose sight of these things. Again, I'm not likely to have come up with many of these. So that's the second reason. Small groups drive the weekend message deeper by broadening the applicability as well and increasing a sense of ownership. Secondly, they allow us to practice the exhortation to teach and admonish one another. The third function of small groups comes from a text in Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now evangelical Christians in Western societies have long interpreted this as primarily applying to our Sunday worship services. And while it's a good idea to not neglect gathering together on Sundays, in a first century context, much of this was probably written to house churches. There may have been some larger gathering because there were large homes, but most of the fellowships were small churches that meet in homes and houses. And so I suspect this primary context was more in the context of smaller groups. At any rate, this task of stirring one another up to love and good works is far more likely to happen effectively in a smaller group of people than in a large group like this. I certainly try to keep it in mind when I'm preparing sermons to consider how to stir and to encourage. But the key word here is not just stir one another up. It says, let us consider. The, f- the main verb is to consider. Consider how to stir one another up. <laughs> you see, all people are not motivated in exactly the same way. The way you are stirred up, brother, to do something may be completely different than the way Bob or Diane or I might be. And in a large setting like this, when I'm preaching, I don't know your hearts. I know some of them better than others, but I don't know most of them. And so it's impossible for me to consider how best. Generally, I have a sense of this congregation because I've been here that long enough. But in a smaller group, it becomes much more possible. To distinguish between various people And how best to stir them So you can actually obey the exhortation To consider carefully A couple of examples from my group And in this case I had to ask for permission To share this and I got it One individual uh, in our group I've known for a while Outside of a small group setting too He's one of those people who like me Somebody says for some people The door to the heart is through the mind I'm like that If, if I can't engage my mind And wrap it around certain things I have a hard time getting excited in my heart And so this was an individual who liked And wanted opportunities where intellectual issues surrounding the faith can be grappled with. But on one occasion in our small group setting, as we were talking about this person's need to move ahead and obey in a certain direction, which is what this is all about, and he was able to, when he looked back upon that and shared his reason, he said, it was because I've had an overwhelming sense that God loved me. (laughs) Now, I'd never have known that about this individual. That a sense of being loved was a primary motivating force to obedience. I wouldn't know it in a large group setting in casual conversation in the lobby, but in a small group setting I found out. Here was another insight of how a carefully considered question can spur one another. We were in another setting where this individual was talking about a tragedy in their larger family. And not only was he processing that tragedy himself, he was also wrestling with how another member of his family was or was not processing this stuff. And in the context of the discussion, another, small group, another person in our small group turned to him and said, what would you like God to do in your life in this situation? Well, this person became very quiet, didn't answer. And so after a while, we continued with our study, and I, I kind of thought that I'd lost him for the rest of the evening because he seemed quite disengaged with what was going on. And as the group was about to come to a close, he said, wait a minute. He said, I have something to share. He said, I know the answer to that question now. He had been thinking about that question. We hadn't lost him at all. That's the power of a properly considered question, to provoke people to do what is right. And how are you going to come up with those things when all you have is one on 300 interactions? But when there's four, six, eight, ten, twelve people over a period of time, you might be able to do this a little bit better. So there's the third reason you can jot down. Small groups allow us to consider how best to spur one another on to love and to good works. They drive the message deeper so that the word of Christ can dwell in us richly. They allow us to teach and admonish one another. And thirdly, they allow us to consider how to spur one another to love and to good works. The fourth value in small groups is that they make it much easier to practice key spiritual disciplines that are almost impossible in large groups. I don't say impossible, but almost you are aware the spiritual disciplines are what the church for centuries gives as a collective name to those practices that allow us to progressively become more like Jesus. We've used the phrase catching the wind of the spirit. The exercise of the spiritual disciplines like hoisting the sail on a sailboat or a windsurfer so that to harness the power of the spirit to move ahead in our life of becoming progressive like Jesus. And that's why it's blazoned on that board so you don't forget it. Catch the wind of the spirit. Live beyond yourself. And there are some spiritual disciplines that are much, much easier, maybe almost impossible to practice in a a large group setting. Let me just spell out at least three of those. First of all is confession. James tells us to confess our sins to one another and sometimes ties the prospect of healing to it. Healing broadly considered, not just physical, in the body of Christ seems to be related to openness and vulnerability with each other. Specifically, we've learned from our solemn assembly practices over the years and especially two years ago when God gave us that message clearly. that the reason why horizontal confession is important is because that's what breaks the power of pride. We can even confess our sins to God. And which should be a lot lot harder because he's infinitely holy. But we find it so much harder to confess to one another. And the reason for that is pride. And so, you break the power of pride by this horizontal confession. It strikes deeply at our tendency to manage our images. To project what we really are not like at all. And hide behind facades. Nothing breaks the power of that than horizontal confession. And while we do it in larger groups, like in solemn assemblies, even there, most of it happens in small group settings. By the way, what you receive in return is grace. (laughs) Only Jesus forgives, but God's people have the privilege of saying, you are forgiven, sister. Jesus forgives you. I don't Jesus forgives you. You go away with a light heart having received grace because a brother or a sister affirms the forgiveness that God has given you in Jesus. That's worth its weight in gold. Secondly, submission. Submission is an important spiritual discipline because we are told to submit to one another, another one another command out of reverence for Jesus. This involves, for example, testing our ideas and placing it before other people. Take myself, for example, I'm, I'm an automatic continual submission to the elders of this church. They can pull me up at any time, any day, so they, hey, we need to talk to you about what you preached last week. We'll have some trouble with some of the things. They, they are supposed to do that if they find anything. But most of you, I'm not submitted to in that way. But when I'm in my small group, <laughs> they get a chance to say, hey, you didn't say anything about this verse. Why did you leave out verse 15? And how come I was reading that day and you you left out all this? Or I was reading the sermon on this chapter by somebody else. He or she said this. That can happen in a small group. So I have to submit my ideas to other members for peer review within the body of Christ. And the fact that I'm their pastor or their teacher doesn't excuse me from that responsibility. So that's that's one kind of submission. Which doesn't happen in a large group setting. Secondly, important decisions. The more important the decision is, the more desperately we need to get input from other people. Excuse me. (coughs) One individual one time in our group this past year was facing an opportunity for a change in the job setting. There were many things about this new job that were attractive. There were not that many drawbacks. But there were some challenges in terms of how the leaving would be done. And so after having spent time processing with their spouse, they brought it to our whole group. And many people in the group spoke to them, spoke into their situation, and then prayed for them. And a couple of days later, this person was able to make a decision and was happy with the decision or comfortable that they made. Bill Hybels once said this. He said, You will never get useful advice from people who don't know you. (laughs) But the ones who know you in a small group setting, who've known you, and who love you, and are committed to you, you're much more likely to get valuable input. So the, the, the so the spiritual discipline of submission, it, it can be practiced in a small group setting. And thirdly, perhaps most obviously, this thing called fellowship. What is it? it? It's not just tea and coffee and biscuits after the eleven o'clock service, you know. Although that's okay, nothing wrong with that. It's not even sitting around having a big breakfast. And the cafe is open next week, uh, open today as well, and the big breakfast next week. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not primarily fellowship. You know what true fellowship is? There's about 57 or 58 commandments in the epistles to one another. Love one another 14 times. Encourage one another. Greet one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not devour one another. Speak the truth to one another. Be humble before one another. Encourage one another. Teach and admonish one another. Submit to one another. 57 times. And they are not suggestions. They are commandments. And these are almost impossible to fulfill in a large group setting. So a huge number of the commandments, fellowship commandments are impossible to obey in a large group setting. I mean, you might probably take somebody away quietly and be praying with them. And that's wonderful. You're loving. them. I'm not saying it's not possible. It doesn't largely happen. But in a small group setting, all of us are priests. We have one high priest, Jesus, and all of us are priests. And we have the power to affirm and to bless people. And on one particular small group night, I remember a person said to us, referring to the previous night, they said, on the way out, they came in heavy hearted, shared something with us. On the way out, this person said, I turned to my spouse and said, I love my small group. Because of how this person had been lifted up that day by the mutual ministry of people. Sometimes bearing one another's burdens, even to the point of weeping. Kenneth Chaffin, who's a professor and a pastor, put this way. He said, something happened between us when I saw my father weep. How much we need to see each other weep. We need to celebrate together, laugh, cry, and pray. This is the beloved community. These things can't happen in a crowd of thousands. They happen in groups of 4, eight, twelve when we are on pilgrimage together. And you know it's an interesting thing. This is a pastor and a professor who's saying it. So you also need to know, folks, that this challenge and this encouragement that we are giving to you for those of you who have never been part of small groups is to at least join this eight-week thing. Is we're doing it as staff and elders to. All of us as staff and all of us as elders are being encouraged and exhorted to participate either by leading or actually be part of a group like this with them. Because we need it just as much as you do. We need to have that. that's why I try to share with you experiences from our own small group as much as possible. And then there's one other dimension of this fellowship that small groups help in a way, and I'll explain to you how. The the, the original Greek word that is translated fellowship, we actually have carried it over into English sometimes and they call it koinonia. The word basically means holding together in common or sharing. And while it applies to everything that we have, again in the the North American society that we live in, economic sharing is one of the hardest things. That's why it took the Holy Spirit to come upon people in in Acts chapter 1 to do that spontaneously. Yes on Sundays, on communion Sundays we have the benevolent offering and you give generously to that. Thank you so much for that. But it's relatively easy to walk by that plate. No one's looking, you know, who's giving, who's not giving. I'm standing right at the door and I never look. I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. It's easy, relatively easy to walk past that. But if you've been in a small group and you've got to know these people over weeks and months and maybe years. you prayed with them and things like that and then suddenly you discover a practical need. Boy, well, it's a lot harder to not think about it. Just a little example and this one is not from our group uh, but it illustrates the point. Um, Canada just spoke about single mothers. Yeah, that's heartbreaking news. But I'll probably forget in a few weeks if I'm not involved in that ministry. But 15 years ago, Sham happened to bump into a, a single uh, lady in this uh, city uh, with a little infant. Some guy had got her pregnant, and deadbeat dad just took off. And she was highly vulnerable state. Well, Sham was able to give her a ride because in the middle of winter, and as a result of that, found out that uh, she was in dire straits. And over a period of time, we've got to know her well. She, she does work in our house. And she, because she said, I don't want to hand out. I want to preserve my dignity. And other people in this church have had her work in her home and stuff like that. Now She has a son who's only one year older than my oldest grandchild. And a couple of weeks ago, she was working in the house. And she said to Sham, just totally in passing, she said, my son needs a laptop. And I had to say to him, don't even talk to me about it. I only had to hear it once. (laughs) This is not some single mother out there. This is somebody we know and love, have had lots of conversation with, who has prayed for us many, many times with power and anointing. So it was a no-brainer. Koinonia, that economic sharing, happens a lot more likely to happen in smaller group than large group settings. All right, four things we've learned so far. Small groups drive the message deeper. Small groups allow us the privilege or opportunity to practice mutual exhortation and encouragement by teaching and admonishing one another. They allow us to consider how to spur one another on to love and good works. And they allow us to practice some key spiritual disciplines like confession, submission and fellowship. The final one is perhaps the most sobering one and I've left it to the end. Hebrews chapter 3, verses selections from verses 7 to 15. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. It seems there is a solemn possibility for people through disobedience to harden their hearts and be seduced by the deceitfulness of sin and be moving in the wrong direction. And their eternal destinies are involved. And the author of Hebrews says to other Christians, exhort them, encourage them. Four times it says today, or three times today, and one time every day. That talks about the urgency of it, precisely because of where the destinies are. John Piper, in a sermon on community, put it brilliantly when he said, God has tied together the certainty of our eternal security and the necessity of community. When we run away from community, we run away from God's instruments to secure our salvation. And in, in the recent month at home, looking after Sham and helping her with her recovery from her knees, it's given me a vivid illustration of this. On the day the doctor discharged us who did the surgery, he came in, checked her out. He said, now you've got six weeks in which to get whatever flexibility you can get in your knee. But that's the big challenge, the knee replacement. He said, anything you don't get after six days, you're not going to get it. Kind of solemn stuff because of where we were headed. And he also gave us some exercises that you need to do them three times a day and with increasing number of repetitions and whatnot. Now my wife is not a structured person and that's to put it mildly. Most of her radiance and beauty in this world that she has blessed me with comes because of her flexibility and her spontaneity. So this whole business of doing exercises three times a day, this many times, increasing every week, and this many walks and stuff like that, it just totally goes against her grain. And on the second day back, with all the fatigue from the operation and stuff like that, she was kind of weary when it got to that point. And if I, out of pity, had given in even a little bit, It might have been easier for her just to move in that direction. And the long-term consequences are serious. But fortunately, I had heard the doctor lay down the law. (laughs) It wasn't me, right? (laughs) No, but seriously, seriously. I loved her too much to allow that to happen. I wanted more than anything else for her to enjoy this few weeks down the line. And so I was able to risk her short-term displeasure. She was kind. And she did respond. And within a day or two, that conviction has become totally internalized. Listen, I thought about it this week because in the spiritual realm, the stakes are much higher. It is possible for people to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and the rest of the community says, "Today, today, don't do it." And that's much, much harder to do in a large group. And you don't just walk out of the lobby and turn to somebody and say, "Hey." You know, watch out. But in a small group setting where you've got to know and see the direction, where you've attempted to spur and consider and nothing much is happening, there may come a time to read the riot act. And say, listen, if you continue like this, you know where you're headed. Please don't do this. But because they've been in that small group setting and they know that you care for them, they're much more likely to receive it. That's the fifth and the final reason, I think, why small groups are crucial. So I've given you those five functions of small groups. I want to finish very quickly by handling two common objections. One common objection is, I don't need small groups. I can get along fine without them. Well, maybe, I've given you five reasons why I think it's highly unlikely, but let's assume for a moment that you can actually continue on your spiritual walk and become more and more like Jesus without any help from small group community. So maybe let me grant for a moment that you don't need them. What about if they need you? See, it's not just what we need from others. We have things to give to other people. The grace of God sometimes comes directly, but other times comes this way and then this way. What if you are one of those people through whom God wants to bless many other people for what they need? That's one thing you need to keep in mind. The second objection is, well, I don't like small groups. <laughs> one pastor who was, or one elder, I think, who had a friend of, say that to him, this was his response. Who cares? You don't have to like them. If you're freezing to death, your best friend would make you get up and walk. It would be more comfortable to lie down and die, but a friend makes you do the painful thing that you might live. A lot of us are naturally shy. We don't get involved and share and care. But do it anyway, it's the route to life. The alternative is death. So here's what we've learned today. Small groups help us drive the weekend message deeper. They allow all of us to teach and admonish one another. They allow us to consider how best to spur one another to love and good works. They make it much easier to practice key spiritual disciplines that are almost impossible in large group settings. They allow us to be our brother's keeper when it comes to turning them away from sin. I was listening to another sermon by Bill Hybels during the summer on psalm 133 how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity and he was talking about some of these things and he finished by saying whose responsibility is it to arrange for this kind of community he said we've tried 12 different things at willow creek they all failed because you see it's not up to us we can free up some time we can teach we can train small group leaders, and we have recruited and trained and will be training next next Saturday at nine o'clock uh, all of these several small group leaders that have volunteered to do, along with the ones that are regular we 're trying to do all of those things on the way out. you will see uh, you can go to two tables, one with existing small groups and one with new small groups. On each of those sheets, you will see the name of the leader. Where they are meeting, what time they are meeting, which day of the week they are meeting, what kind of a group it is. So we are providing you with all kinds of opportunities to sign up. And by Tuesday, you will also have all this information on the web. While you can't sign up on the web, you can certainly go there and you can directly indicate where you want to be by emailing or calling the the leader. So we can put all that into place. (laughs) But it's your responsibility to say, if this is true, if this is something at this stage in my life God is speaking to me about, I need to act. Let me pray briefly, and then I'm going to have the worship team come and lead us again. Father, we ask you to illumine us through your word. We now trust that you have done that work in each of our lives. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will just continue to guard that seed, nurture it, and let it bring forth appropriate fruit in each person's life. In Jesus' name.